at the feet of Jesus. That's where we get our strengthening. That's where we get our comfort. That's where our batteries are recharged. And um, the warrior is a child, but you know we're the child of the Most High God. He created us to be his children. And that is a position we can never, ever lose. So thank you so much for that. Today we're going to begin uh, the end of a three-part series on spiritual warfare. And next week we'll have our pastor back to preach to us continuing about evangelism and outreach, and then he'll take a vacation. But it'll be wonderful to have him back, and I thank you again for allowing me to speak to you today. So our last song was a little bit of a teaser about our message today. But before we get into that, you know, I was going to put this little battery pack in my pocket, and do you know these are fake I mean, what's the sense of pockets that you can't put anything in? They're sewn up. It's like somebody short-sheeted my bed or something. I'm very disappointed. Oh, I can cut them open a little bit. You can tell I'm a big suit wearer. I, I'm like, what is this? It's like, it's like the clamp that's in the cement pond in the fancy eating table. Um, but God is working on me, right? He's working on all of us. But anyway, so today, today um, I'd like to, before we get into the, today's message, I would like to review a little bit about how we've come through in our series. And two weeks ago, we talked about spiritual warfare kind of from an, uh, a flyover view. And the thing we need to remember is that it does come to us when we are experience a period of growth, maturity, something new is being birthed in us. And there's usually a very specific season with very specific signs that go along with that. And also, God allows spiritual attacks. He is sovereign. He's a sovereign God. But he allows sometimes for his hand to be removed to allow us to experience battle. Now, the important part is that even though he may allow the attack, he's going to fight the war for us. It's a very interesting thing in God's economy that he allows us to partner with him even though he's going to orchestrate everything on our behalf, give us the strength that we need, the courage we need, the weapons and armor that we need, and all he asks of us is to trust, to yield, and to watch him work through us, which is very exciting. We also know that ultimately it's for our good. When we are fighting the spiritual battle, we become stronger. We learn to trust God in ways maybe we never did before. We become humble. And you know what? God exalts the humble, and yet the prideful are the ones that he will lay low. So all of these things work for our good, even though it's painful at times. So it's also important to remember that in spite of it all, we win. We have to look past the moment and see the victory that comes uh, when all things come together in God's perfect plan. And then last week, we talked about the love of God. Because in order to be successful in this battle, we have to know in the deepest part of our hearts that God absolutely loves us and that Jesus paid the price as a sign of his love. There was no greater gift God could give us. There was no greater sign that he loves us. And if he's willing to give his own son, then what's he going to withhold from us? Nothing. And not only that, but no one can lay a charge against us. God has acquitted us. Jesus is our lawyer. The Holy Spirit strengthens us. So there is no one that can lay a charge against us that can actually stick. They'll try. And uh, we, if we have to stand strong in the truth. Now, 
Two of the tactics that the enemy may use when we're experiencing trials is, number one, that he's abandoned us. We talked about John the Baptist last week and how he was put in prison and Jesus goes up to Galilee. And John's probably wondering, wait, but I'm here, cuz, all right? You're my cousin, you're my, I was going to say my homeboy, but I don't think he said that. (laughs) But the idea is that you're God, you could help me, you could rescue me, but you didn't. Does that mean I was wrong, that I failed? Does that mean you don't care about me? And then the other question is, are you really who you say you are? Are you really God? Are you really faithful? Am I the exception? Your promises apply to everyone else. And he even sent his followers to ask Jesus, are you really the one or should I look for somebody else? Which is so odd because he knew it was Messiah. He said, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm not worthy to untie your boots, your sandals. And yet, in that moment of trial, even though he knew the truth, the enemy came in and sowed seeds of of doubt. So it's important for us to remember that God will come at us the same way that he came at those heroes of faith. Satan has nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. His attacks are all the same, and they're basically just lies. And his point is to get us to believe those lies, which in fact, we got God's truth to stand on. We're more than conquerors. What that means is we will not only get through this trial, but God will work everything together for our good. So we don't just survive, we thrive, we grow. These are opportunities, as painful as they might be. So today, we're going to unpack the second scripture that we declared on that first week. So we declared two scriptures, and last week we unpacked Romans 8, okay, the end of Romans 8. And then we declared Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, about the armor of God. And so today we're going to look through that, unpack it, think about it, understand what it really means, and then apply it. Because this is really where the practical aspect of spiritual warfare takes place. Our first two Sundays, we're really explaining what spiritual warfare is, abiding in his love. But now we've got marching orders. We've got practical things we can do when we find ourselves in the fight. And that comes down to the armor of God. But just like with Romans, there was a lot that came before Romans 8 that we unpacked. And it's important to see the context. So let's go ahead and go through uh, 6, 10 through 20, but then let's back up and see what comes before it to understand why this is there and what its purpose was. So it says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He's got schemes. He's just a liar. He's a deceiver. That's the only power he has in our lives. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So that's the whole scripture. Now let's back up and look at the context a little bit. The first part is that the book of Ephesians is six chapters. And the first three chapters are these wonderful truths of what God has done for us. Paul is writing to tell us really how wonderful a gift we have received. What happened to us when we when we accepted the Lord, when the Holy Spirit came to live in us, how does that change us? Who are we now in Christ? And so we look at verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Praise be to the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. When you became a child of God, every blessing of heaven became yours. Yours in that moment and yours for eternity. Nothing is withheld from you. It says in uh, a little bit later on, you were marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. That is his promise. When the Holy Spirit came into you, that was like the first deposit, the first guarantee that everything else would follow. If God put his spirit in you, then all of the rest of your inheritance will surely come through. We also have the fact that we are God's handiwork. We are his masterpiece. He is working on each one of us as a unique and perfect, precious piece of art that's going to adorn the heavenly kingdom. Each one of us is his masterpiece. And it also says that he is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or think. So whatever we imagine, whatever we want, whatever we hope for, he can do that and so much more. We can't even begin to guess what that might be. These are big, big promises, and there's a whole lot more as well. I encourage you, sit down and read Ephesians, and you will be blessed. Now, the second half, chapters 4 through 6, basically say, now that you know this, now that you know who you are, now that you know how you've been blessed, now that you know how wonderful God's grace and love is toward you, then live worthy of it. This is the marching orders. How shall we now live knowing what God has done and who we are in him? And so we begin in chapter 4 that he urges us to live a life worthy of of this precious gift. And then in 429, he gives some practical examples. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Guard your tongue. Later he talks about wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving their wives and children obeying their parents, and parents not causing their children to stumble, and employers treating their employees fairly, and employees treating their bosses as if they're working for the Lord. Practical steps, things that we're asked to do to live out who we really are in Christ. Now, there was a gentleman, he was uh, diagnosed with a very serious illness, a rare, rare disease. They'd never heard of it before. There had been a few cases, And they found only one treatment that would work. And so the doctor, rather than speaking to the husband, asked the wife to come in for a consultation. And he said, you know, things are not beyond hope. 
but really you're going to be the key to his recovery. It's very important that every day you begin with a temple massage for about 15 minutes, that the stress can go through the body from the head down, and then a foot massage so that the stress will leave from the legs up, that you're to give him total control of the remote so that all television programming will be his decision. Uh, all meals should be home-cooked, organic, and uh, don't skimp on the bacon. It's important to have lots of bacon in his diet. And if he should, uh, if you should have a disagreement, it's important to yield. You know, he's going to make the ultimate decision, have a soft answer. And also, if he is feeling romantic, you should be receptive at all times. So the wife goes out to the husband, and the husband says, Well, and she said, it looks like you're going to die. <laughs> you know... I love telling marriage jokes as someone who is spouseless, so I can, I can feel happy about that. Now, even in my sadness and loneliness at times. But what I love about this is that what really the doctor, the wife is feeling is, I can't do this. You know, Paul has told us how we need to live, and we need to recognize, oh my gosh, no unwholesome talk, talk. submit. Love, obey, work unto the Lord. How do we do that? And so Paul now is going to come up with his finale. And the finale is basically saying, in your sinful nature, you cannot keep this commandment. And not only that, not only are you sinful, not only is there nothing good in you, but you also have an enemy who's going to poke at your weaknesses, who's going to try to chip you up and try to make it even more certain that you will fail. And that doesn't sound very good. But Paul decides, let's go on to the next slide, that to remind us that we have a battle that we're going to fight, but that God has made a provision. Now, I am a history buff, and I love World War II history. So if there's ever an opportunity to make a World War II analogy, I will do it. I will seize that opportunity. And here we have D-Day. You've all heard of D-Day, right? June 1944, the Allied forces stormed the beaches of, of Normandy. And basically from that moment, the outcome of the war is decided. There is no question that the Nazis will fail. They have the Soviet army coming from the east. Now they've got... You know, the English, the Canadians, the Americans, eventually the French coming on the other side. They're going to be squashed like grapes, and there really is no question about it. And yet, there's still a battle to be fought. Although the conclusion is certain, there is still a battle to be fought before the end game. And one great example of this is just a few months later, in December 1944, the Germans mount an assault against the Allied forces, which was the greatest land assault the greatest tank battle, the most number of soldiers that ever had engaged. Even though the Germans pretty much knew they were going to lose, they still were throwing everything they had at the Allies to stop them to postpone the inevitable defeat and to take down as many people as they could before they went out. That is one thing about Satan that is disgusting. Satan knows he is defeated. There are actually times in my life where I've kind of felt sorry for him. I always wonder, God, is there any way he can repent? But then I realize he knows he's defeated, but his only objective right now is to take you and I down. 
He wants people to go to hell eternally because he's mad at God. We are the apple of his eye. When he hurts us, he's poking God in the eye. And so he would rather fight as a defeated foe to hurt as many of us just for the sheer spite of it. And that's a devil I don't think there's any redemption for. But we have to know that the victory is certain. Despite the battle, despite the attack and the resistance, victory day will in fact come. And so that's the, that's the period of time that we live in. Victory was certain at the cross. Victory for us was certain when we accepted Jesus. But the enemy is going to do what he can during this window of time, during this season, because he's an evil, rotten, nasty snake. But his future is damnation and the lake of fire. And our future is to be seated with Christ. So let's talk, let's unpack Ephesians a little bit. Let's look just at verse 10. And it says here, be strong in the Lord. Now, I'm an English teacher, although I do have problems with spelling. If you ever come to my Daniel class, you will find that I spell angels, angles, and I've done some other things. But uh, this word is actually in the passive voice. Now, passive voice just means that the subject of the sentence is receiving the action. My car was repaired. In other words, the car, someone repaired the car, right? The shark ate the man. The man was eaten by the shark. Not a great example, but anyway, the man is receiving the action. He's receiving the action. So in this case, when it says be strong, what it really means is be strengthened. Allow God's strength to come upon you. Yield to the Holy Spirit and receive. We cannot be strong. We cannot muster up strong. We receive God's strength. And in Romans, it talked about the fact that it's the Holy Spirit who, in our weakness, strengthens us. That's where we get our strength. Now, in 11 and 12, Paul begins to talk about the unseen enemy. And we've been talking about that the last couple of weeks. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. But for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil. So we have to remember this word struggle is wrestle. It's hand-to-hand combat. And we are not combating our neighbor's our bosses, our spouses, criminals, terrorists. Those are simply puppets used by the real power, which is Satan. Now, Satan is the ruler of this world. Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. When Adam fell, he turned over the keys to this earth and the authority that he had to Satan. And until Jesus returns, this world is still under a cloak of demonic oppression. When Satan took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, bow down and worship me and these will be yours, well, he had the right to give him those kingdoms because they were under his authority since the fall of man. And Satan actually has his own government. And just like we have governments where we have our, uh, our president in the federal government, our governors, our state legislatures, well, basically, Satan has his demonic forces that are assigned to different areas of the whole world. When we look at Daniel 10.13, we'll go back. Uh, Daniel has prayed, and he's been waiting for several weeks for his prayer to be answered. And Gabriel comes and said, we heard your prayer on the first day. 
But I had to contend. I was fighting with the prince of Persia before I could get you the message. Well, Satan has a demonic power assigned to Persia. And very likely, he has demonic powers assigned to Tulsa and Broken Arrow. Perhaps even this church, perhaps even each one of us, there are specific levels and ranks of demonic forces which are working to trip us up from the biggest level to the smallest level. And so Satan does not want us to be ignorant of that and to realize that we are in the battle because we personally are the objects of attack. Now, Paul's inspiration, as he talks about putting on the full armor of God, is pretty obvious, okay? He writes Ephesians from prison. He's chained right next to a Roman soldier. And he's looking at him one day, and he's checking out all the armor, and he thinks, oh, this is a perfect analogy of God's armor for us. And so he begins to talk about how do we withstand, in practical terms, the enemy's attacks. Now, it's very important to understand exactly what it means to put on the full armor of God. Because a lot of people, I've, I've met a lot of friends who memorize the verse, or Sunday school kids who kind of go through the motions, and they say, you know, belt of truth and breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit, like a mantra, like something they've memorized. It doesn't do anything for us just to quote the Scripture, although there's power in the Scripture. But this particular passage is talking about practical application what we need to do with the armor. It's not just reciting that it's on us. Each piece represents an action, a corresponding action that we take. And each piece speaks really to our salvation. It speaks to who we are. It's telling us that in that evil day, and each one of us will have that evil day, and each one of us will probably have many evil days, that in that moment we are to stand. To stand. What that means is we already have climbed the mountaintop. We are already in Christ. We are already in the truth. But we have to stand there when Satan tries to push us down the mountain. And so, uh, let's go ahead and do the next one. So let's just go through each piece of armor. Let's go through them one by one. And the first one it talks about is to keep the belt of truth around you. The belt was the central piece of the armor. They would hold, weapons would be hooked to it, the breastplate breast would be fastened to it. You know, if you loosen your belt or you forget it, your pants fall down. And that is exactly what Paul is saying. This is the essential part of your armor. This holds everything else together. And what is it? It is truth. We must know what is true. We must know what is true about God. Who is he? He is love. He is sovereign. He is forgiving. He is three in one. He gave his word in the Bible. He redeems. He saves. He also judges. We stand on that truth. Who am I? What is the truth of who I am when I'm in Christ? Well, I'm saved. I'm sanctified. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm promised the destiny in heaven. And what is the enemy's attack? See, for every piece of armor... The enemy is going to have an attack. And so we need to remember that when his schemes begin to be revealed. And the first thing we see is that truth is going to be attacked. Pontius Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? And we live in a generation where that is a question that everybody asks. In fact, everybody is now given the opportunity to have their own truth. 
I have my truth, you have your truth. As long as your truth doesn't attack my truth, we're good to go. That's the world that we live in. We have a quote by the Dalai Lama. I don't know if you can read it, but he talks about the fact that there are many religions and many truths. Well, there aren't many truths, but our world will tell us there are many truths. The way to salvation, we know the truth of that. There's one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The atoning blood of Jesus is the way to salvation. And yet, the seeds of alternate truths are thrown in our face. There are many ways to God. There are many paths. God loves you. Follow your own truth. What's the truth about marriage? God made it very clear. Male and female, husband and wife. And yet now we're saying, well, perhaps it's another way even with our genders, male and female. And yet now there are, I think there are some surveys where people can check, I don't know if it's on Facebook or somewhere, up to 100 different genders. I don't know how that works. I have no idea, and I don't really want to know. I'm happy with the, the duality, male and female, in all of our wonderful uh, attributes. But Satan will throw in there's a new truth, a new revelation. Don't be stuck in that old thinking. So when that battle comes, we have the belt of truth securely around our waist so that we're not pushed by any new ideas. Now in 6.14, it says to put up the breastplate of righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? Now, first of all, the breastplate is to cover our most vital organs, our heart, our lungs. Before we knew Christ, we had a dead heart. Our righteousness was a filthy rag. But God imparted us his righteousness. We are not righteous in our own strength. We are only righteous in Christ. And it's very important that we understand that as good as we want to be, it is Christ's righteousness that will justify us. And perhaps as bad as we've been, when we're accused of having lost our righteousness because of sin, we can still point to the devil and say, in my fleshly righteousness, I deserve judgment. But in God's righteousness, I am accepted and I am loved. So what's Satan's attack? He's got two different ways he likes to attack this. One is that he begins to whisper in our ear that we're good. I'm a good man. I give. I serve. I'm actually better than others. I'm not relying on Christ's righteousness. I'm relying on my righteousness. It's just like the man that stood and said, um, I'm so thankful, Lord, that I'm not like these sinners. Even for a Christian, even for a believer, we can walk around and sometimes feel better than others. And yet in reality, we are all equally sinners and we are all equally deserving of judgment apart from Christ. We're all on the same page. Or, and Satan does this as well, he will begin to make you doubt the righteousness you have in Christ. He will tell you that your sins, your failings, your lack of perfection, you don't pray enough, you don't give enough, you've sinned in this way again, so you've lost that righteousness. And so in this situation, we have to, again, remember that, yes, my rags are filthy, but Jesus puts righteousness on me. Now the next part of the armor is that our shoes are, are fit, shod 
with the gospel of peace. Now, there's a lot of different interpretations about what this means, but I personally believe that when we're talking about the gospel, that's the gospel. That is the good news of Christ's salvation. I believe that these, these boots that they wore, they had studs. Sorry, I about lost my balance there. Uh, they had studs on the bottom, kind of like cleats. This is the one piece of armor that we use to advance, that we use to take enemy ground. It's sharing the gospel. It's telling people about Jesus. It's telling people our testimony. It says in the next verse in Isaiah, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Now, when I think about my own life, there is never a time where I feel more knit together with Christ, more forgiven, more joyous, more, more strong, stronger than when I'm telling people what God has done for me. Now, it's one thing for me to sit in my car when the enemy comes to say, okay, Jeff, you've been saved, you've been forgiven. I can talk all day long to myself. But the minute I lock eyes with another person and I begin to tell them who God is, when I begin to tell them what he's done for me, when I begin to say, your life can change, you never have to feel this way again. When I see light come on in their eyes and life come into their spirit, then I'm strong. It's infectious. It's energizing. I want to go skip down the road like Gene Kelly in that whatever musical, Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain of the Spirit. Because there's something so beautiful about simply telling people what a good God we have. And He's available for you as well. Now, some people also talk about the gospel of peace kind of as tranquility. Having peace in the Lord. Being able to rest in Him. And I, that could definitely be part of it. When we know who we are, then we are not going to be anxious. We're not going to be worried. We can simply lay back and know that it's going to be all right. So what is Satan's attack? Well, first of all, he's going to make us lazy. He's going to say, lay on the couch, binge watch something on Netflix, don't get out there and share the message with anybody. Or he's going to get us so busy doing good works that we never have time to actually share. Or he can tell us, not your gift, not your talent, you're not the one to share, you don't have a testimony worth hearing, leave it up to the, to the qualified people. Or he may come at us just with anxiety, worry, and fear that robs us of that peace. So we have to stand in understanding that when we proclaim, when we share the truth, that we are going to get stronger and our victory is even closer. So then it brings us to the shield of faith. Now, to me, the shield of faith is kind of a partner to the belt of truth. The belt of truth tells us who we are, who God is, what our destiny is. But there are times when we need God's supernatural faith to be able to hold on to that truth. Because Satan's whole purpose is to undermine that truth. And in our own flesh, in our head knowledge, we can know, yes, these things are true, but when Satan comes against us, we can always say, yeah, but. I was talking to a guy the other day, and he would say, I know I'm forgiven. I know God has a destiny. I know God will help me, but there's no buts in this particular equation. These are truths, but we need the shield of faith 
to begin to come against all of those attacks that begin to undermine whether we really believe that. Faith is supernaturally given. So we have to just ask for it. Give me the faith to believe the truth. Give me the faith. Uh, I have faith, but help me. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. In other words, we always can have an extra anointing, an extra portion of faith. So what's the attack of the enemy? Well, it's doubt, of course. And let's not be mistaken. We live in a culture that is controlled by the enemy, and his whole purpose is to begin to sow doubt. I was talking to Pam about this last night. I can't imagine sending my kids off to college now without a lot of prayer, particularly secular colleges, because they, have, they are seated with people who, whose own, only objective is to undermine any kind of biblical worldview. Our media. I mean, we've got people who openly proclaim that anybody who hears the voice of God is nuts. We've got movies. We've got uh, books and music which defame and erode the truth. And we must keep that shield of faith to knock away all of those little attacks that come and bombard us. And also the culture itself. If we see what's happening in the culture, we understand that it is all created to undermine our stand on the Lord. And then we have the helmet of salvation. Now, the helmet of salvation is basically what is going to protect our thought life. This is the battlefield of the mind. Salvation incorporates all that God has done for us. But our thoughts, our flesh, the world can begin to corrupt our thinking. And so the, the, the helmet of salvation is that which encourages us to take every thought captive. The minute a thought comes to me that is ungodly or a lie, I immediately have to take it captive. I have to renew my mind. Now, it says, be not conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Again, this is passive. Again, we simply receive. We ask God to renew our minds as we worship, as we pray, as we study, our thought life becomes in alignment with his. It says we can have the mind of Christ. That's what that helmet of salvation is about. So what's Satan's attack strategy? Thought bombs. And he knows which ones to throw at each one of us. He tailor makes them. You aren't saved. You haven't changed. God's angry with you. This trial is just too much. You're going to fail. God's a killjoy. He's robbing you of good things you could have here. Sin is sweeter than Jesus. It's not worth it. All of those are the thought bombs that God, that God has to help us overcome with that helmet of salvation. And then it says to take the sword of the Spirit. And what is the sword of the Spirit? The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And this is our offensive weapon. Everything else that we have is defensive. This is where we begin to do that hand-to-hand -hand combat, that fatal death blow to Satan comes when we use the Word of God. We know that the Word of God has power. It says, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Word of God is powerful. And we can use Jesus as a perfect example. When Jesus was baptized and went into the desert and the enemy came against him, he used the Word of God. Jesus, 
See those stones? Turn them into bread. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Every time Satan came with an attack, Jesus had the word of God to back up his standing on the truth. It's power. And that sword of the Spirit was actually a dagger. It wasn't these long swords we think of for like the medieval knights. It was close, hand-to-hand, in-your-face combat. It's the word of God. That's what we need. Now, what's the enemy going to do? Let's go to the next one. No, no. Well, his attack, first of all, is to tell you that the Word of God is nothing but a man-made document, that it's too confusing to understand, that all the translations are probably wrong, and that it's really confusing and you can't trust it. We have to understand that the Word of God is alive. The Word of God was spirit-breathed, and it is mighty. Now, I have to confess, I'm not that good at memorizing scriptures. I'm one of those guys that can paraphrase. I can paraphrase a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm not always good at finding the address. Like, well, I think 1 John 3, 7. No, I mean, this is something I was really convicted on. Because in that moment of trial, when Satan is in my face or any demonic force, I have got to quickly summon the Word of God to be appropriate in that situation. And if I'm just kind of sitting back wondering, you know, what's, what scripture works for this or what, what kind of generally, it's not going to work. We have to hide the word of God in our heart. We have to declare it with our mouth. We have to declare it as truth to the enemy, and he will flee from us just as he fled from Jesus. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Paul ends with the key piece, prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is intimacy with the Lord. We have access to the throne room. We can boldly go into the throne room. But when I'm praying, I always imagine myself like John at the Last Supper with my head on Jesus' breast or Mary at Jesus' feet. Prayer is that relationship. Prayer is where I tell God, this is what I'm thinking. This is what what I like. This is what I don't like. This is what I'm afraid of. This is what's bothering me. This, I think, is kind of neat and interesting, and nobody else wants to hear about it, but I know you'll hear about it from me. It's a daily meeting with Jesus. It's a daily resting with Jesus. It's a daily breathing with Him, feeling His heartbeat with us. That intimacy means that we are going to hear His voice. It says, my sheep hear my voice, and another voice they will not follow. In the middle of a battle, we've got to know the voice of our master and distinguish it from the voice of our enemy, because so many of us get confused. Is it me? Is it God? Is it Satan? Is it me? Is it God? Is it Satan? And if we do not have daily intimate connection with our Savior who loves us, then we can get confused. So this leaves us really with the final summation of the very the whole series. And that is, we're going to just move on. God is more than enough. God is more than enough, and we are more than conquerors. He has given us every spiritual blessing. He has allowed us to face battles because he knows it will strengthen us. He has given us the armor so that we can withstand the evil day. And he will provide us more than we can ever ask or think. 
He is bigger and better and brighter and more beautiful than we know. Our cup overflows. And today, as we begin to, to uh, have our invitation, I want us to reflect on all the good things God has provided for us, is providing in this moment, and will provide in every season. And for those of you that are wanting to join our body today, we welcome you to come up now, welcome you into the family as we sing this song.